0: thing for people who believe in the value of both of language learning and believe in the value of international education to think about is how do you tell your stories? How do you, you know, express the value of what you do?
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Stride's inaugural podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, Senior Director of Campus Partnership with Worldstrides, and I am beyond excited for this week's episode. This is a big one, folks. Today, it is my distinct honor to welcome the one, the only, the Karen Fisher, onto the podcast. As the Chief International Education Reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education, Karen's name and writings will be familiar to our listeners, and I'm excited to get to know the person behind the thoughtful insights that are essential reading for so many of us in international education. Karen's reporting has been a core part of my Media Diet since I started in this wonderful field of ours a decade and a half ago, but she has covered our sector for nearly 20 years, and I like to think of her as the North Star of international education. In addition to the Chronicle, her work has also appeared in the New York Times, The Washington Monthly, and EdSource. Her weekly newsletter on global education, Latitudes, is a must-read for anyone interested in worldwide student mobility. Without a doubt, she's one of the most astute observers of international higher education. I always appreciate Karen's ability to not only observe, explain, and predict how our field is evolving at a macro level, but see beyond the day-to-day into the big picture. I can't wait to pick her brain. We're going to take a peek behind the curtain into a day in the life of an international higher education reporter, get her take on the big picture issues of the day, impacting our work in international education, and discuss the ongoing evolution of our field, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. Trust me, you want to stick around for this conversation. do not want to miss this episode. Karen Fisher, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Oh,
0: thanks, Zach. Now I have to live up to that introduction.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am absolutely thrilled. And if I'm being honest, a little awestruck to have you as a guest on our show today. Your writing and your name are so well known in our field. I'd love for you to set the stage for our conversation by giving us a brief overview of your career in international high education and in the reporting space.
0: Sure. I kind of backed into international education a little bit. I was a political reporter for a number of years and came to the Chronicle to cover um, policy, basically, um, in the States. And a couple of years into it, we did a little shakeup and um, I joke that they made me the international reporter because I was the closest thing to being international. I'm Canadian. Um, but also, <laughs> I spent time, uh, you know, studying abroad, and it was very interested in the field. And, you know, it just sort of, it's one of those sort of serendipitous things that just took off from there. Right? And it was a really great time to be in it. There was a lot of stuff happening. You know, it was 15 years ago. And so we're seeing this, you know, flood of just interest in studying in the united states from students overseas you were seeing kind of a a real sort of priority in, you know, the political space, you know, Barack Obama's talking about sending thousands of students to China and how that's a, a real geopolitical priority. And so it's just a really, you know, exciting time to be covering all aspects, international students, study abroad, and, and even things like new campuses starting overseas. And so I think I thought I, frankly, I would do it for a few years. And then, you know, as one does, switch beats, and then I just stuck with it. And and here here we are.
1: You mentioned you were Canadian, and I'd be remiss not to ask about your own past international travel experiences. Did you have a formative international experience when you were younger? Did you study abroad?
0: I did in like the most traditional of places. Um, I'm a, you know, JYA Paris person. You know, also my dad was a, a professor and he would travel and sometimes take us with him. And, you know, I think that kind of very early taste of of going to different places, sampling different cuisines and and cultures, I think was an early, if not formal experience, just a formative one.
1: So you did a full academic year in Paris. I would say that's non-traditional. That's a non-traditional spin on Paris. Uh, So thank you for sharing that. Many of us look to your writing for insights, but we don't know the person behind those thoughtful pieces. How did you get started as a reporter And what are some aspects of your work that are especially meaningful to you?
0: My mother might dispute this because I thought about being a doctor, but from a very young age, I loved to write and was very much, I mean, I, you know, like everybody dabbled in poetry and fiction, but maybe I'm not creative enough. And so other people's stories, you know, rather than trying to invent my own um, appealed to me. So although I didn't study, um, I'm a liberal arts, College grad didn't study journalism, but um, kind of knew I, that's the direction I was going. And so, and in terms of what do I really like about it, I, I do like writing. I mean, there are days where you ask, you know, my friends or my family, and they will say that I'm complaining a lot about it, but I do enjoy writing. But I also just really enjoy people and getting to know people and hear their stories and being a reporter is like an en- entree into that, that you, you know, I think the podcasting that you're doing also allows you to ask those kind of questions, but it would probably be a little weird if I went up to somebody like at a cocktail party and asked them the- about their lives in the same way that you, you, you're <laughs> afforded to as a yeah. reporter. So well it's a great way to, to understand people.
1: I love how you articulated that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Karen. Take us behind the curtain. What is it like writing for the Chronicle? What is a typical day and the life of Karen Fisher look like?
0: I mean, there's no typical day and it's really changed, um, you know, as you, you said in your um, intro, I've been at this a long time. And so it's changed a lot and doing the newsletters changed it even more. So I I do a, kind of a mix of largely long form reported pieces. You know, I just did a story about Afghan students that I've quite honestly been working on for for two years, not you know, every day, obviously. And so it's sort of a, a combo of of kind of seeding those long form pieces. Um, you know, at least one day a week, I'm quite literally writing the newsletter, but I'm always sort of casting about for, for leads, for other things to write about, keeping top of trends. And so it's a lot of reading things, talking to a lot of people, bugging people by email, and then stuff comes across the transom that, you know, maybe it immediately sparks something that I want to write about. And maybe I just, I have the like world's longest Google doc of ideas. And so maybe it goes in there and I sort of, you know, I'm always kind of going through back through that thinking, you know, here's this thing I heard over here. How did, oh wait, this connects to this whole new conversation I'm having. And so maybe that's something I really need to be, be writing about, you know, it's sort of something sort of churning in the
1: field. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I'm often asked um, how how we come up with topics for the podcast. And, you know, I wish I had a more sophisticated response, but really it's the notes app on my phone, um, <laughs> right. you know, when something comes up friend. in my, my day-to-day I think, oh, this would make a good podcast episode. I just write it down. You put out a weekly newsletter focused on global education called Latitudes, which for me is a must read. Um, tell us more about this newsletter and how you hope practitioners utilize it in their work
0: its origins was was really that I was finding that I was putting out a lot of news on social media. And that was kind of, I would tweet it and that would be it. There wasn't a lot of space. Like I said, I was writing primarily this kind of longer form journalism. So it was, what do I do with this? What do I, I have all this news that I could see people were interested in, and so what do I do? And so I thought for a long time about this notion of a of a blog or a newsletter, and so started the newsletter on my own, and um, then a couple of years, um, year and a half ago, I guess. Now the Chronicle bought it from me, um, and how? Did, so, like I said, it wasn't. It was very much in a news sense that I was thinking about it initially, um, but. Now I talk to people in the field and they will say to me, we read your newsletter and talk about it over lunch and, or we have, you know, some sort of professional development um, that we're, we're, we're using it as an, as a reason to talk about something that's happening, say in education abroad and how, how should we be handling this issue or, you know, how should we be getting, you know, focused on more non-traditional students, for example, or, you know, even people are using it in classes, which was certainly not ever anything I envisioned, but. It's really
1: cool. You know, I just remember back during the early days of, of COVID, right? Of the pandemic when, when our when our world and international education was changing literally by the minute. That for me is when latitudes became so important because you really, you know, you it collates all the all the major issues in our field. And so I remember sharing the newsletter with lots of people during that time. You mentioned Twitter earlier, and I've been a, a longtime follower of yours as well. Uh, on pretty much every social media platform out there. What do you make of the changes to the platform formerly known as Twitter? And where can our listeners best follow your work now?
0: I, I find Twitter to be just not nearly as useful as it used to be. Um, I used to not only you know put my, my news out there, but I really valued the kind of conversations that I would get, both in terms of responses on stuff that I was posting, but also um, just stuff would come across my newsfeed and would be very relevant to me. And now I'm, you know, getting like social influencers telling me how to wear men's fashion, which is not super useful to me. But I do, I still, I put stuff on X, but I don't find it nearly as valuable. I'm actually, which I, a couple of years ago, would never find my, I believe I was saying this, but I was a very passive user of LinkedIn, but I find it much more useful now. And perhaps it's because You know, I'm covering a field in which, you know, there's a lot of professional dialogue about it. But I find that I get a lot more discussion about my pieces. Um, I find that I am hearing, you know, I'm sort of peeking in on conversations that are more useful there. I'm just seeing a much bigger flowering of, um, you know, conversation. I mean, I'm keeping an eye on all those other platforms to see if something emerges. But for, for now, anyway, I, I find that LinkedIn's actually become surprisingly useful to me.
1: I agree about the transformation of LinkedIn. Um, and I think I would recommend to our listeners to certainly follow Karen on, on LinkedIn, as she often, as she said, Posts or articles and and other things that would be of interest to to this
0: audience. I ask for these things that I'm thinking about, too. I sometimes ask and I get a lot of interesting responses from people that way about, you know, prompts that I'll I'll post there, too. So it's useful that way.
1: Fantastic. You know, I mentioned earlier and I think I made you blush just a little bit, but I always think of you as the North Star of international education. In your mind, what are the defining issues for international education in 2023 so far? What are the hot topics that have been occupying your mind this year?
0: I mean, there's a couple of things. I I wish I could cross this off my list, but I still think we're in a period of, you know, in so many ways, COVID um, affected this field in a way that's really almost unparalleled. I mean, obviously everybody's life was incredibly disrupted during COVID, but, you know, when you're, when mobility is often at the heart of what you do, that's, that's an enormous challenge. And so, you know, I think it's affected everything from, you know, how, how do students and parents think differently about sending their students here and also about going abroad? You know, I I think we've talked about this before. Today's college students missed out on so many things. And where does education abroad then fit into, you know, on the, all the on that list, that very long list of stuff they missed out on being, you know, stuck in their parents' basement for a couple of years. So, I mean, I, COVID, unfortunately, is still a big thing. I'm thinking a lot more about equity and access. I, I feel like these were conversations that we would sometimes have, certainly, you know, there always, you go to a conference, there'd be a few sessions on it. But I just feel like in so many ways, it's become so much more central to all the, the discussions we're having. And that's, a, you know, from who do we send, who gets to study abroad to who gets to study here in the United States, to even who's, frankly, in the offices that work on these topics. So I think that's a big one. And then I just, um, Disruption, and that's a very mushy thing. But you know, some of it's COVID, and what does that look like? What does technology look like? Um, I think that's going to be a big legacy of COVID, and how does that manifest itself in the work that people in the field do? Um, But also, you know, I just I said a moment ago that mobility is at the heart of what we do. But do we start thinking about cultural experiences that don't necessarily reflect getting on on a plane? And so, those are a couple of the the big things on my
1: just just a few things going on in our field these days. <laughs>
0: just fair. a couple. I yeah. mean, I, we could keep talking for the <laughs> next hour. And I have a very long list.
1: But... Absolutely. <laughs> I do want to circle back to COVID for just a moment. I would love to to chat with you about something that that's been occupying my mind lately. And what do you think are the most important lessons that we in international education learn from that experience? And what have we learned that you would like to see carried forward? These
0: are going to seem really big picture, but... I think flexibility. And and look, I'm really guilty of this to my, you know, I've been doing my job for a while. And so you get in kind of a rhythm and it, it, I think made everybody realize like we can be nimble and we can adapt. And maybe we've been doing study abroad like this for years. Well, maybe it's going to look a little different than it has in the past. I mean, this is an oft overused word with COVID, but I think resilience, people found themselves to be much more resilient, but I think we also learned that students are as well. And so I think it's how do those pr- those, those very big picture principles get incorporated into sort of an actionable ways in the field. And some of that's challenging, right? Because it's in some ways, whether it's somebody in education abroad, suddenly being asked to do both short and long-term programs overseas, but also coil and, you know, virtual exchange, where maybe they weren't being asked to, to have those, both those set skill sets, but also to literally have more on their plates now. And, you know, in, in international recruitment, similarly, you both are getting, people are being asked to get on the plane, but also get up at three in the morning and, and talk to students over zoom and, you know, Asia. One of the things I'm interested in is how does that all shake out? What do, what do we decide our, our priorities? How do we make it manageable to, to do, in some t- ways, twice the work?
1: Absolutely. I th- I thank you for sharing that. I retweet on your comments about resilience, and I have, I have seen it in our work in education abroad as well. I hope that's a takeaway that we can carry forward with us. How is your work as an international education reporter different now in 2023 than it was in, say, 2019?
0: I would say two ways. One is is to echo the technology thing that I I said before. I mean, certainly I did fair share of my reporting um, by Skype, but um, for good and bad, I have a lot more of these Zoom conversations now. These interviews and. Um, I don't think it's a substitute for getting on a plane, but yet, you know, I did a story during COVID where I talked to a student who was stuck back at home in China, and we would Zoom at, you know, after she got done her classes at early in the morning, her time in the evening, mine. And um, it, there was an intimacy there that, frankly, even though I'd spent a lot of time following students around and hanging out in their dorm rooms, that That I got. So there's some good and some bad with the technology piece of it. And then this goes back to something you said earlier, frankly, in higher education, international education can sometimes seem on the margins. I I think during COVID, (laughs) it it reminded, you know, colleges reminded my my readers who are beyond the folks who did this work of Mm -hmm. its real importance and centrality. And so, um, you know, Even though I couldn't, even though I wasn't leaving my kitchen table, I have been busier than I have been in my entire career since COVID started.
1: Wow. You know, as I mentioned earlier, so many of us look to you for guidance on what is happening and what is important in our field. You have the ability to find common threads, spot trends and interpret big issues. I'm curious, what other voices would you like to amplify? What is Karen Fisher reading and what is she following?
0: You know, like I said, I, I do pay attention just to the run-of-the-day conversations that I see happening on social media and LinkedIn and things like that, and um, not to make anybody feel watched, but I do pay attention. <laughs> um, I read the kinds of publications, you know, in the, the field, whether it's on the professional side, like, you know, NAFSA, or more on the research side, like the Journal of International Students. One thing I would say that, I, again, because I've been doing this for so so long, I mean, at the, when I started, I, I mean, you know, there were a handful of people that were doing interesting work um, on the, you know, either the, the, the fully research side or the scholar practitioner. Practitioner side. I felt like I was always quoting the same people, you know, when I had to, to sort of zoom back. And now there, I mean, one of the things that's been most exciting for me is just this flowering of new, new people coming into the field and, and doing research and, you know, everything from, you know, the mental health impact to LGBTQ students to, you know, what are the, the, the longer implications of mobility and, and work and job prospects. And so, um, that's not recommending. That's sort of not recommending a particular place that anybody can talk to, but uh, or read and go like you know bookmark on their their favorites. But um, but I'm always paying attention for who who's doing something new. I read a lot of people's dissertations.
1: You know, sometimes for those of us whose work focuses exclusively on education abroad, there's a temptation to miss the bigger picture issues in international education. So I'm curious if you have any advice for for those of us whose work is exclusively in education abroad about how and why we can follow the other issues in international higher education.
0: You, you're obviously you're speaking from the we and that that makes sense. Um, but I think it's probably true for for everybody, you know, that the, the faculty members who who you know, do intercultural learning. We're necessarily talking always to education abroad folks. We're necessarily talking to the people who were, you know, off admitting international students. Um, One of the things that I guess I would say is, and this is a privilege that I get because my, what I cover both encompasses all these things, but I also then dip in and cover things domestically and hire it as well. There's a lot more commonality than maybe we all think. And so a lot of the same kinds of skills, I mean, there's plenty of people who, who, who've jumped from, from one side of the, the fence to the other and, you know, who, who do different kinds of work and, you know, who even go from, you know, student services to education abroad. So, you know, I think there's a real temptation to be caught in the silos, but I think you're, you're exercising a lot of the same muscles.
1: You know, as a longtime thoughtful reporter and observer of our work, How, in your mind, has international education evolved since you started covering this field?
0: On the education abroad side, I mean, I remember going to my first forum and like the biggest debate was whether or not, you know, um, short term programs, you know, like that you should discourage people essentially from going on short term programs. And that, you know, the, you know, if you didn't go for a semester or a year, you might not as well might not have had an international experience because, you know, so I think the, the, that on the education broadside has changed a lot. I think, as I said earlier, there's a lot more focus on who's not coming and why why they haven't been reached and thinking. I mean, just the ways that people in the field are reaching students um, is very different than they were doing back then, um, on the the students, on the international students' front, um, I think I didn't understand this because like I said, I went to a liberal arts college, which even like a million years ago when I was in college, I think something like 20% of my classmates were international. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took for granted that, but what I came to realize was we were at a point where pretty much all the international students or most of them had been graduate students. That's a very different animal. How do you, and they were often just coming, and so, you know, there's been this whole sort of learning curve for a, a lot, not all, but a lot of institutions about both how do you recruit students, but then how do you care for them? How do you make them feel like they belong? And, and I guess that'd be the final thing I would say. I mean, we talk a lot about belonging. And I think that that, that language has is something we think of, about a lot more in the work that is happening in, in international education broadly.
1: You have a broad viewpoint of international education and are informed by many years of practice and connections that you've made. What are some of the predictions that you have for the next five years in international education?
0: I mean, I remember writing a story probably 10 or 12 years ago about how, because I would get this question constantly, is how is technology going to disrupt international mobility? And I was like, it's not. And I don't, I still think disruption is a strong word, but I think um, that it may make it possible to to maybe expand. That's another tool that I think for a long time, people were very uncomfortable with, um, in part because it was always talked about in this sort of framework of disruption. I think there might be more openness to to using some of those lessons about technology from the pandemic to to, to change what mobility looks like. And I think you know, we haven't talked about it, but I, I think this consciousness, particularly among our students, of the climate impacts of of, of international mobility, are, are are going to also maybe nudge the the people who are professionals in the field, because students really are concerned about this and they don't want it. So I think mobility is is a big thing that we'll be really grappling. What does mobility look like, and does it look the same way that? that it did in the past is something we'll really be grappling with.
1: You know, you've been an international education reporter for a long time, but I'm curious, what other areas of higher education interest you and why?
0: I started a few years ago to try to think about like what connects what I write about. And it's actually all this stuff that's kind of like, I don't cover or rarely do I cover, you know, like what's happening in the classroom, for example, but I feel like I cover everything around it. Um, So Right now, the, the biggest thing that I'm covering is sort of how higher ed exists in the public perception. And so how does um, higher ed make its case? You know, we see these enormous socio-cultural divisions along higher ed. Um, I, you know, for a number of years was sort of like the, I, we called it like the Trump's America reporter, where I would cover kind of issues about those those divisions. You know, and that took me in many different places, like covering thing, you know, everything from like how how does hybrid like literally be a good neighbor in its, you know, college towns to those divides around education that even affect your health or how, you know, you die young if you don't get a college degree and what are the implications of those kinds of divides kind of permeating. our our lives. And so that's, that's a a thing I cover. And and it would seem very unrelated to international education, but I actually think that there's a lot of parallels because, you know, it's really about how colleges exist in the the world.
1: I love how you make the connections there. Thanks for sharing that. Thinking back over your career, Karen, what are some of the most memorable stories you've covered? And why have those in particular stuck with you?
0: In international education, I guess I would say a couple, um, obviously, sort of the ways that um, it's not, this is not one story, but the ways that COVID affected international students um, and students who wanted to study abroad was a big. Like, there's no one single story, but just the, the ways that it manifested itself in their mental well being and their choices. And with the story that had a student who was stuck in China also had a student who was like one of a dozen students for almost a year on her own college campus, you know, for the, the first semester that she and I spoke. She wasn't even, she would only know that, that the other people were around in her dorm if she could hear like their music playing or something. And that kind of isolation, you know, was incredible to, to document and bear witness to. Um, the, the other piece, I guess, I still, or series of pieces, is I did a kind of a trio of pieces over a couple of years um, about Chinese students at the height of the, the, the Chinese students coming um, to study here. You know, I spent a year at Michigan State following a group of freshmen. I spent a oh, cool. month following some families through the admissions process, and then I spent another month or more than that, both with student students who were here in the U.S. sort of trying to make their way, and also students who had gone back home, you know, to try to figure out what it, what is what is having that American degree li- really mean when you go out into the the world quite literally and try to make your career
1: you're positioned to have a pulse on all of the professional development events that are available to folks in international higher education do you have a favorite conference and if so what makes it special
0: you know i the, i like different conferences for different reasons um you know nafsa's just the the biggest and you and and getting to be in the um exhibit hall is is really interesting and I also like it too for the unexpected like it's always the unexpected sessions that I most um, you know enjoy I went to one on LGBTQ students and the issues that they um, experience studying abroad and so but that's, that's a story that's on my list that came right right out of a, a session. You know, there were things like clearly I thought about, like if you go to a really conservative country, what does that mean? But the other ways that it might manifest itself were were things I hadn't really thought about. But then I, I also like AIA because it's kind of talking with the people who are sort of at the top making policy choices, and that's useful. And then um, you know, sometimes I, I really like to go to sort of the unexpected conferences, the you know, the people who don't who's whose colleges or providers can't pay for them to to go to NAFSA. Some of the regional conferences have been um, really fruitful. And, and hearing, you know, there's often so many people who are coming up into the field and hearing that kind of input is is really exciting.
1: You heard it here first, folks. Karen Fisher could very well be in one of your conference presentations this year. <laughs> Some of the trends of the moment include a decrease in language learning, uh, reshaping of academic units, and shifting views on the perceived value of higher education. Think through a forward-focused lens. What are some aspects of these changes that our listeners as international educators should consider as we approach our own work?
0: I'm watching the, the cuts say at WVU um, with, with great concern. And partly I'm concerned, I mean, I always say it in, in reporting, you're interested both in the unicorns, but also in the the things that make you think something broader is going on. And certainly, I mean, they've they've since backed off a little bit and they're not completely cutting all of their foreign language faculty and basically saying, Oh, you're going to learn your languages from an app. And so that's great. Um, And so obviously what that's all to say, what they were doing was certainly much more far reaching than other places. On the other hand, I'll be watching and writing about later in the fall. Um, the MLA has documented, um, the Modern Languages Association has documented cuts to foreign languages. We know coming out of, for example, the the recession that that was a big place for, for cuts and not even immediately, just sort of as colleges budgets continued to sort of feel the hurt out of out of the downturn. You know, you saw sort of three years later Colleges cutting foreign language programs, and, and for some reason they're always in the chopping block. I would like to say that I believe coming out of the pandemic, when we were reminded and our colleges were reminded that international education is important, that that won't be happening. But I'm concerned that if you know that it will, that's negative. I think the thing for people who believe in the value of both of language learning and believe in the value of international education to think about is how do you tell your stories how do you you know express the value of what you do and then how frankly it reflects the values of and mission of your institution i mean i would like to think that you could just get up and say that you education is broad, uh, broad is is good because it's important to to go to other places and meet other people and learn from new perspectives but also it can be very i think you know and that's the way we can certainly talk amongst ourselves but i think when when we talk about the value of, of learning a language, you can sort of go back and talk about how that makes you a better learner overall. And when you talk about the value of education abroad, we know that it's highly correlated, even if you compare like students to like students with you know, student outcomes and retention and graduation rates. Um, and so you know, finding ways to, to make the case, I think, about the value of what you do.
1: We are a field of folks who have the travel bug. What is a place in the world that speaks to you on a deeper level than any other place?
0: My favorite place uh, is Hong Kong. And that's a tough place to have as a favorite place right now. But, you know, it's fav- It's a favorite place for me, both on a personal level. I met my husband there. He proposed to me there. And so, like, in a deeply sentimental way, I, I like it. Um, but it also just is, like, the... I don't know. I just, I get off the plane and, and I love the energy uh, of the place. And so I guess, you know, and it's also, I'm, I'm a big, like, I like cities, but I also really like, I don't know. I, I love trees. I, just, I plant trees in my spare time. So Hong <laughs> Kong a really green place. And I always love that.
1: <laughs> Lastly, I just have one final question for you, my friend, as you think about education abroad in particular, as we head into 2024, what are some of the things that make you hopeful
0: a, a couple of, of things um, do one is I you know we talked about before the students and the long list of things they missed out on I, I've met students who who are so committed to going on an education abroad experience that they've done it technically after they've graduated because that that like that summer was the only time they could could squeeze it into you know as they try to cram in everything into the last couple of years um, that they've missed out on. And so I think our students are, sometimes they get it more than their parents do or or the the, the university leaders always do. And so that's one thing that gives me hope. And the other is, um, I think it would have been very, very easy um, to give up. Um, you know, I did a story during the pandemic where I talked to people about burnout and, you know, what is it like to, to plan the umpteenth education abroad program only to have it canceled because, <laughs> you know, of, you know, the policy in a country and the travel restrictions there or your lawyer, your your lawyers saying we, we can't go, you know, and so many people stuck with it. And then there are so many people, you know, I went to NAFSA and I don't, you know, there's always a lot of new people at NAFSA, but, you know, I've met a bunch of people who'd come into the field either as COVID was happening or since it had happened. And I thought to myself, you know, I feel the same way about journalism too, where I say, like, would I become a journalist today if, you know, versus, you know, a couple of decades ago when it was really flourishing and, you know, newspapers are closing and, you know, would I do that? Would I, and for education abroad, would I have the guts to go into a field where everything was so uncertain and yet, We do. And so both the people who've sort of stuck with it and the people who, against the odds, are like so incredibly excited about what they do. I mean, that I think maybe I'm being Pollyannish, but that kind of it's got to give you hope, right?
1: Well, I can't imagine a better place to end things than right there. Karen Fisher, what a fabulous conversation. I can't thank you enough for being here.
0: That was so fun, Zach. Thank you.
1: And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McKennis, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World's Rides colleagues, Lindsay Kelchner and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives Through Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.